Subject of the talk tonight is Rigpa Consciousness and Nirvana. These uh, teachings, when I first encountered them, provoked a lot of reflection in me because coming from a Theravadan background and encountering these teachings, there was an entirely different Dharma model that was being used. Some of the points were very consistent and fit very well together. Others didn't seem to bear a lot of relationship to each other. And in particular, this concept of Rigpa became very uh, intriguing to me. Because of its nature of cognizance, it connects in the direction of mindfulness. I trust you've gotten a sense of that, that the cognizance is what knows experience. And in Vipassana practice, it's mindfulness that sort of plays that role of knowing our experience. So that's in one direction of connecting with experience. In the other direction, because it doesn't arise or pass, at least the ground doesn't arise and pass, and Rigpa is a view of the ground, it also connects to that which is beyond change. And in the Pali Canon, the classical teachings of the Buddha, there's only one Dhamma that is beyond change. And I'm sure you know what that is. It's the unconditioned. Nibbana in Pali or Nirvana in Sanskrit. So here we have this piece called Rigpa, which on one end of the Theravadan model connects to mindfulness, our basic practice, and on the other end connects to the unconditioned of Nirvana. I'll use the Sanskrit tonight because it's, it's common. That's curious, isn't it? There's one quotation uh, in the text that points to something uh, similar to this. A questioner came to the Buddha and said, you've talked about these five physical senses of sight, sound, smell, taste, and touch. Where do these five physical senses come together? Because they certainly seem quite separate. They said, what's the locus? What is the uh, container or meeting point of the five senses? And the Buddha said, the mind. So the questioner thought for a minute, and he said, okay, what's the locus for the mind? What's the container greater than the mind? And the Buddha said, mindfulness. The man thought for a minute, and he said, well, what's the locus for mindfulness? Where does that come together? And the Buddha said, liberation. Liberation is the locus for mindfulness. The questioner thought for another minute. He said, what's the locus of liberation? And the Buddha said, nibbana, nirvana, the unconditioned, that which is not subject to coming or going. And the questioner thought for a minute. He said, what's the locus of nibbana? And the Buddha said, this is going too far. <laughs> and refused to answer. One of the few occasions of humor in the Pali Canon. But I hope you get the sense of this connection, the physical senses, the mind, mindfulness, liberation, and nibbana, each sort of bigger than the one before. Well, either way you take it, toward mindfulness or toward nibbana, there are points of controversy between some Theravadan understanding and the Dzogchen understanding. Because in the Theravadan understanding, as you go in the direction of contact with objects, 
Of course, mindfulness comes and goes, but even more fundamentally, consciousness comes and goes and is considered impermanent. It's one of the five aggregates. All the aggregates are impermanent. So consciousness is impermanent. Rigpa and the cognizance of Rigpa is considered to be stable, ongoing, not subject to change. How do we figure that one out? And then if you go in the other direction, where uh, there's some correlation between Rigpa and Nibbana, or Nirvana, in the classical, some classical understandings, Nibbana doesn't have an element of cognizance to it. And we'll get to that later, but typically it's presented as without consciousness in many, many schools in Theravada. So how does that fit together? So these questions became very interesting for me. I mean, more than interesting, they really gripped me. And I spent a lot of time trying to understand not only how the languages fit together, but what was, what was, what was true. Really, which one was true? And checking against my experience and other people's experience and, and reading the text, which one was I going to believe? What was I going to adopt for myself? Now, for some of you, this may sound just like philosophical speculation and not very important. But I know there are people here whose practice gets into the realms of Nibbana, for whom that is not just philosophical talk, but a living actuality. And other people who want to understand the relation of that to the consciousness that meets each moment. So, at least for some, I know that this is a, a question of some urgency, can be a question of some urgency. Why? One reason is that in the Theravadan understanding, when one has a direct realization of or experience of the unconditioned, that constitutes stream entry. Once one has uh, attained the stage of stream entry, final liberation in terms of arahantship is assured. It says in the text that it will take place in no more than seven lifetimes. And the Buddha makes statements like, once one has attained stream entry, the amount of suffering left in all of one's future lives is very small compared to that which has been undergone before. So, although this can just be another source for ego clinging, have I or haven't I? You know the dilemma? Have I attained the ultimate state where I didn't exist? (laughs) Right? These can just be credentials along the way. They can also be very uh, deeply felt issues of concern and things that I, I feel it's important to resolve within ourselves. Ajahn Sumedho was practicing, he's told this story publicly, so he won't mind it being shared again, was practicing with Ajahn Chah. In the early years when he was a a bhikkhu in Thailand, Ajahn Chah was his teacher, great enlightened master. And he had had an experience and wondered if it was stream entry. So he went to Ajahn Chah to ask. It's kind of a big deal if that happens in your practice career. So he described the experience to Ajahn Chah and asked him to tell him whether it was or wasn't stream entry. 
And Ajahn Chah replied, how should I know? I wasn't there. (laughs) Which is great. And I think it's the same suggestion as Rinpoche refusing to endorse Rigpa or non-Rigpa for people. So in the end, the only final authority can be our own. But how do we come to make that kind of evaluation? How do we know whether we've uh, deeply touched, accurately touched, something that is beyond change? Because it's said that, that the actual contact with this element, this unconditioned element, is what allows the uh, bondages in the various forms of bondage in the mind, called fetters in the Theravadan, to be uprooted. Not just temporarily suspended, but taken out for good. And in our tradition, they are considered to be ten of these sources of bondage and suffering, each of which gets uprooted at a later stage in the development, each of which gets uprooted by this contact with the unconditioned element. Because this unconditioned element of uh, nirvana is so free in its nature, it is so completely unbound, that it is the direct realization of it, experience of it, that communicates that quality of unbinding to our individual minds and releases uh, the bondage. So, I want to approach it in uh, the both the directions it goes, the directions of consciousness on the one hand and nirvana on the other, and talk about how Rigpa is related to each of those. So to do that, I first want to talk about what consciousness is in the classical understanding. I don't think it's different than the Tibetan understanding of the first six consciousnesses, but let's go into it a bit. Consciousness is the fifth of the five aggregates. They're form feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness is the fifth. The body and the physical world and the sense experiences are all part of form. So the whole physical world and sight, sound, smell, taste, touches are all in the first. The other four are all parts of the mind. So when you say mind in Theravadan, the biggest sense is it's these four mental aggregates put together. But they could all be uh, combined down to, three of them could be combined into one. Feeling and perception can also be considered as mental formations. So really we could say that mental formations form the first part of the mind. And these are mind states, both emotions, moods, refined states of mind like concentration, tranquility, and so on, all come under the category of mental formations. And then the the fifth aggregate is this one of consciousness. The Pali is vijnana, the Sanskrit is vijnana. So what does consciousness mean? Consciousness is that part of the mind that has the barest experience of sense data. So, for instance, as your eyes are open and you're looking out and you're seeing patches just of form and color... You know, before you recognize it as patterns like man, chair, woman, carpet, bell, etc. Just that knowing of 
the different shapes and forms that are in front of the eye is said to be visual consciousness. Or, when that sound reaches you, just the bare knowing of the sound is said to be hearing consciousness. This kind of consciousness takes place very automatically if our senses are working and we're awake. If we were a corpse or if our senses weren't working, we wouldn't have this consciousness. But because we're awake and our senses are working and a s- something happens, we all have this consciousness. It comes very automatically. We don't have to do anything about it. And in fact, you can't stop it. If I tell you not to hear that sound, you don't have any choice. So consciousness functions quite automatically. And consciousness refers to just the simplest knowing of it before any concepts come in. So it's before you even turn and think, that's a bell, or even before you turn and think that's a sound before there's any categorizing of it at all. There's the bare physical experience, completely non-conceptual. Consciousness is the mental part of that. So there's the sound, but somewhere you're knowing it, right? You're not a bump on a log. If you were a bump on a log, you wouldn't be knowing it. But you're not a bump on the log, so you are knowing it. That's what it means to be a conscious being or a sentient being. So consciousness is that part of the mind, that functioning of the mind that is knowing the sound. There are said to be six kinds of consciousness from Theravada, and that is the five physical senses plus the mind door. So the mind is knowing thoughts, it's knowing emotions, it's knowing intentions, it's knowing feeling tone, it's knowing perceptions. And I think what happens in Theravada is that we combine the sixth and seventh consciousness that the Tibetans talk about into the sixth. I think what they talk about as six and seven is all just six for us. And we don't have an eighth. Just six. Sometimes it's helpful, you know, because if you try to find this thing called consciousness, it's kind of unfindable. You can find all the other aggregates. You can find body. You can find feeling. You can find perception. You can find moods, emotions, and thoughts. But try to find consciousness... And it's like the eye trying to see itself. Because consciousness is what's doing the experiencing. So how is that going to experience itself? Rinpoche talks about a non-dual kind of knowing, but this is more particular. This is the knowing of an object in Theravada. So what I want to suggest is the best way to think of consciousness maybe is as a verb. It's really about knowing. So don't worry if you can't find a thing called consciousness, but if you can just get in touch that the quality of knowing is happening in your experience, this bare sense knowing, that's consciousness happening. Is that fairly clear? Okay. Now, this is one level of knowing. And uh, in Theravadan, as in Tibetan, there are different levels of knowing. So in our meditation practice, the next level up of knowing is called mindfulness. Mindfulness, in our tradition, is defined as knowing what our experience is in each moment. 
So if you read the Satipatthana Sutta, it says when the practitioner breathes in, he or she knows I'm breathing in. When the practitioner breathes out, he or she knows I'm breathing out. When they breathe in long, they know I'm breathing in long. When they breathe in short, they know I'm breathing in short. When the mind is influenced by attraction, it recognizes attraction is present in me. When it's not influenced by attraction, it recognizes attraction is not present in me. So mindfulness is all about knowing what our experience is in this moment. So that's a little bit higher level of knowing. In the beginning, it's somewhat conceptual. It takes concept to know, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm experiencing greed or aversion or sadness or happiness, whatever. So mindfulness is a little bit of uh, intelligent knowing. So consciousness doesn't take any intelligence. You can't turn it on, you can't turn it off, it's just happening. Mindfulness takes some intelligence, and that's why it's the opening of wisdom. So I think if you look at Rigpa also, it might be interesting to ask Rinpoche this, you'll also see two levels of what could be called cognizance. There's the cognizance of the bare sense field that's coming in. It's clarity or cognizance that shows us that. It's also cognizance that knows the nature of, of emptiness and cognizance combined. So that's a little bit higher level of knowing. It takes wisdom to know that. It doesn't take a lot of wisdom just to know sense data. That cognizance functions automatically. It takes wisdom to know the union of emptiness and cognizance. So that, that kind of knowing is also in, in Rigpa. But there's this other word that we use a lot in, in Dharma discussions, in Tibetan as much as in Theravada, and that word is awareness. Awareness. What I found really interesting is that there is no Pali word that needs to be translated as awareness. The whole of the Buddha's classical teachings can be translated without using the term awareness. Consciousness and mindfulness are the only two translations you really need. Just for the Pali aficionados, there's one other term, sampajanya, that's usually translated as clear comprehension, but can be sometimes translated full awareness, but it's not necessary. Clear comprehension works. So what do we do with this term awareness, which is so used in the description of Rigpa? I want to come back to that. But just one more thing to say about consciousness to illustrate the dilemma. It's said to rise with the arising of the sense element. So when the bell is struck, hearing consciousness arises, and as the bell fades away, hearing consciousness fades away. So this knowing rises with an object and passes with an object. And someone asked the Buddha once, is this the same consciousness that travels to the next birth? And the Buddha said, definitely not. You've misunderstood me. So it's really clear that the aggregate of consciousness is impermanent, arising and passing. Yet the cognizance of Rigpa is considered to be lasting. 
not subject to birth or death. So which is true? Is consciousness permanent or impermanent? You remember when I told the story a few nights ago of asking Mingyur Rinpoche what the difference was between the Majamaka view and the Dzogchen view? And he said that the Majamakas consider that the Dzogchenpas believe in something that doesn't exist. This is, this is the nub of that controversy. The Madhyamakas would say that the Dzogchenpas believe in the ongoing nature of cognizance when in fact consciousness arises and passes. They would say that's the nub of the confusion or mistake. You'll also find this view, as I think I mentioned, in orthodox Theravadan circles. That if you try to describe the practice of Rigpa to a very orthodox Theravadan teacher, I'm thinking of Burma especially, they will say, no, that's, that's wrong view. That's wrong understanding. You remember that also that I asked Ajahn Sumedho about this dilemma. And his response was, I don't know the answer to that, but this idea works for me. So, for those of you who aren't very philosophically inclined and who don't really care about this question, you're welcome to drop it. You can use the notion of Rigpa as skillful means, or you can believe it, you know, either way. Gita, is there a question? Yeah, where does the sense of self arise in this? In the aggregate model? Or... No. Yes. Well, higher. Yeah, even higher. The question was, where does the notion of self arise in this level of cognizing? And it comes in at an even higher level because um, it rests on fixation and a form of grasping. So there's been some conceptualizing of the object and a singling out of the object and then a latching on to it. So it's even a little higher level of concept than mindfulness that just knows what it is. Develop, develop some relationship with it as being attractive or unattractive. So the feeling tone is also important um, in that. So it arises in the Theravadan model from a mix of a bunch of the aggregates together. And that stickiness isn't seen clear. The way they function together isn't seen clearly. And that's what creates the mistaken notion of self. But for those of you who care about these things, how can, how can we resolve it? So I was teaching this to a group of senior students a few years ago, and I couldn't get across the way that I was thinking about it or the way that I resolved it for myself. And I, I was really turning the question over a lot. Then that night I went to sleep And I I woke up in the middle of the night and this image came. And this image solved it for me. So this is what I want to share uh, with you. You can consider it kind of a thought experiment, if you like. When When I studied physics in college, we were told that we could prove physical theorems in three ways. One is by physical principles. One is by mathematical proof. One was by testing it in the laboratory experimentally, and the third was called a thought experiment, or Gedanken experiment. If you can think it through and there are 
no inconsistencies, it, it's valid. So this is a Gedanken experiment. So I want you to imagine something. I want you to imagine that you're way out at the edge of the solar system and your back is to the sun. And hypothetically, let's just say you don't worry about a spacesuit, you don't worry about how you're getting air, you're just out there and you're, you're just small. <laughs> and let's say further that you're facing into a part of the sky that doesn't have any stars. So it's just hypothetical. Edge of the solar system, looking out from the sun, sky doesn't have any stars where you're looking. So what do you see? Black, right? You see black, don't you? Is it the black of the color black? Or is it the black that's the absence of any light? It's the black that's the absence of any light, right? So there's no, no light coming to the eye, so the eye sees black. Now, is that space that's in front of you actually free of light? Or, or does it have light? Your back is to the sun, the sun's radiating. It's full of light, isn't it? It's pervaded by light, but we don't see it. So it looks black. Okay. Now, let's suppose that a meteor flashes up from below and flies in front of your eyes. Do you see it? What's it like? Light. There's a big flash of light, isn't there? And then it goes and it's dark again, right? I want to suggest that this is an analogy for the relationship between the unconditioned and consciousness. And the analogy is that the sunlight that's pervading the empty space, the ever-present sunlight, is like the unconditioned nature. But we don't usually see it. But when an object, a phenomenal arising, comes into that field, it gets illuminated by the unconditioned nature. And that flash, which is only temporary, is consciousness. Does that make sense? Say it again. When I was in university... When you're when you're looking when you're looking out into the into the sky, your back's to the sun, you see black, but that black is actually pervaded with light. There are photons passing through there streaming from the sun, but we don't notice it. Soon as an object passes in front of us like a meteorite, there's a bright flash of light that reaches our eyes and seeing takes place. That the analogy is that the sunlight that's pervading the empty space is like the unconditioned nature. It's ever-present. But that the flash of seeing that happens when the object comes into the field is consciousness. It's illuminated just temporarily, just momentarily, by the unconditioned nature, the ever-present nature. But that flashing goes away when the object goes. 
in response to a question from over there yesterday <clears throat> that uh, that actually um, Buddha nature, the unconditioned, is permanent, and that Rikpa is a little bit different, but it, it is this union of consciousness and Buddha nature. And and so it isn't, I mean, it's more like what you're just describing. I mean, I, so when you're saying that Rikpa is permanent, I'm a little confused, because I, I thought he said he said something a little different. He said it was perception. Yeah, he said the percep- Rigpa is the perception of the ground right. or a piece of the ground, and that comes and goes. Right. So in that sense, it's true. But Rigpa is often described in the text as that which is beyond change. I mean, sometimes the, the vocabulary is not so clear between Rigpa and Buddha nature. Uh-huh. So I could also say Buddha nature uh-huh. through this talk. That made sense to me. And then when you were saying tonight, mm-hmm. Rigpa is permanent mm-hmm. through my, my sense of it's pointing to, it's, it's our current word for an unchanging nature. But we can substitute Buddha nature, and it will work just as well. So where does awareness come in? So let's just, I just want to draw out another thing about the, um, about the analogy. This... Um, Sunlight pervading empty space concept actually occurs in uh, some Tibetan texts. The solar system part doesn't. Because they didn't have the solar system back then. And the meteorite doesn't. But I think I had heard that sunlight pervading empty space and that's part of what you know, allowed this image to form. So it is kind of a, it's kind of a classical analogy for the unconditioned nature. Because it's, it's empty. Think about light particles. They don't have any mass. That's one of the curious things about light is it is massless. It has energy, but it has no, no weight. And it's everywhere if you're, in, if you're near a sun. Mm-hmm. I was just thinking about dark retreat. Dark retreat, yes. Yes. How you experience light? You uh, experience light in your In dark retreat, you experience yeah. light? Yeah. You experience. yeah. Questions about dark retreat and experiencing light. Uh, in, in meditation with eyes closed, we experience a lot of light also. Uh, it tends to be a sign of concentration. So there are these inner lights that do come in meditation. But it doesn't need anything. You know, it doesn't need a sense of doesn't need sense input. No, and this is just an analogy for... I mean, this doesn't require physical light. You know, the physical light is just an analogy for the clarity of mind. And the flashing is just an analogy for the cognizance of objects. So it could be inner, all inner objects. could be cognizing an emotion. We don't know it until the natural clarity or cognizance shines on it, and that's what illuminates it. So it's not physical light that I'm relating it to in our experience. Uh, but the cognizance of nature. So light's a good ana- just a good analogy for that, the cognizance. And sometimes the word that's used for the cognizance feature, the nature feature, is clarity or luminosity. So it's almost built in. I think it is. 
sometimes it's talked about as the clear light of the void. Now, I'm not sure whether that's an accurate translation because that term came in a long time ago and whether the Tibetans would talk about it that way today. I, I tend to think that the clear light is a slightly off translation of luminosity or clarity, but I'm not an authority on that. Sorry? Uses that term? Clear light? Mm-hmm. I asked him. I said, is that liquid? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, th- I th- certainly think it has the sense of unconditioned clarity of the nature. Yeah. Well, here's where the analogy breaks down a little bit because these things are occurring in physical space, first of all, and then it takes us. Well, yeah, I'm I'm combining the outer stuff with the consciousness of the individual who's watching. So, yes, you know, in the real situation, that sunlight pervading empty space is within each of us. It's an integral part of our minds. In fact, to say it's within isn't quite right because it's both within and without. Yeah. All right. Here's what, I'm, here's what I basically want to suggest. Is that when a phenomenon arises, let's just say at one of the five senses... The ground for us to know that is already present within us as this unconditioned clarity. But no phenomenon takes place, no, con- let's put it, let me put it another way, no consciousness takes place, no sense experience takes place until that unconditioned clarity meets with a physical phenomenon, which is the sound. So in the analogy, the sunlight is the inherent clarity of the mind, but in order for it to be effective or function for us as sentient beings, it needs an object to reflect it. We don't see it, we're not aware of it until an object reflects it back, bounces off of it. Sorry? No, I am. <laughs> The comment was that Rigpa's not preoccupied with that, and you're absolutely right. If this whole discussion doesn't interest you and isn't necessary, you can drop it. Okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so my experience of what's useful about the 
is that there can be knowing without knowing. That, you know, I'm not working out all the details of that, but intuitively, I can at least conceptually grasp that and have a brief experience of that kind of groundless, it's non-positioned. That somehow makes sense, whereas I always felt like I had to annihilate myself in, you know, in the positive European condition. That was the thorny knot. So when I understood that there could be still some awareness of cognizing, that like opened something huge for me. So that's really what I'm trying to do. Does that sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I can appreciate that because it's very hard to get any kind of conceptual model on what the unconditioned is in the Theravadan view because it's so little talked about. And so in the later part of the talk, when we get into the nirvana piece, <laughs> that's actually what I want to go into is that there are four different ways of looking at, at nirvana. And so I want to unfold those and whether it comes with knowing or not is an integral part of that question. So we'll get there. And let me, I, I, let me just continue a little bit longer before we open up for questions, because um, <laughs> let me tell you, there are many questions on this topic, and uh, there's some material I want to cover first, so let me go a little further. So, this is, this is the model that, for me, resolved the dilemma, because it illustrated consciousness is being temporary, but arising out of a base that was unchanging, a base of cognizance that was unchanging. So if you really want to mess the analogy up a little more, you can think, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going to take questions on this statement. <laughs> this is just for play. But imagine that perhaps the way to perceive the unconditioned nature directly is to turn back to face the source. That's all I'm going to say about that. Eileen, you had a question earlier that I will come back to. Where does awareness come in? Good, thank you. Where does awareness come in? So, in the um, Tibetan tradition, this aspect of natural clarity, which is not subject to arising and passing, illustrated by the sunlight in the analogy, is often called primordial awareness. Primordial because it's been there from the very beginning and it's not subject to birth and death. So, I think it could be helpful to capitalize the P and the A in that description, just so you remember that it's an aspect of the unconditioned. It's not an awareness of changing objects, but it's been there forever, in this view, forever. It was interesting, do you kind of see how this model of consciousness has an element that's conditioned, because it depends on the object being present, but it also has an element which is unconditioned, which is it's kind of a reflection of that underlying luminosity. So I was interested to hear when Ajahn Jumnian came one time, Someone asked him, is consciousness conditioned or unconditioned? And his answer was, it has both aspects. Mm-hmm. 
It has a conditioned aspect and it has an unconditioned aspect. So that you'll find that the Thai forest tradition is very much in line with this view and this analogy. They're, they're right there. Then the other question is, as was asked a minute ago, how does this connect with the unconditioned or nirvana? That's what I'd like to talk about next. So I'll start with a, a quote from the book I mentioned the other night, Self-Liberation, that was translated by John Reynolds. This self-originated primordial awareness has not been created by anything. Amazing. It does not experience birth, nor does there exist a cause for its death. Amazing. So this makes it clear that the primordial awareness is not subject to coming or going, not subject to birth or death. And as I said, in the Theravadan canon, there's only one dhamma, there's only one element that fits that description, and that is nibbana. So the question is, is awareness an integral part of nirvana or not? So as we get into the territory of nirvana, I want to make one distinction when the Tibetans talk about nirvana, as I understand it, they talk about it to, to mean the mind state of a fully enlightened Buddha. And that mind state is characterized by a quality of omniscience, that it can know anything that it turns its attention to. When the Theravadins talk about nibbana, same word, they use it in two ways. One is the mind state of an arhant who has become fully enlightened where all the defilements have been released but who may not have omniscience, generally does not have omniscience. But it's a liberated mind in either case. But the other way that nibbana is used is as a synonym for the unconditioned element itself. So we often say that one can realize nibbana, or one does realize nibbana at the stage of stream entry. There's a direct experience or realization of this unconditioned element so that one knows what, what that is from first-hand experience. So just get the sense that they're, too, they're a little bit different. So I'll talk about uh, primarily the second sense of the unconditioned element. What is the unconditioned element? How is it understood in different Buddhist traditions? How is that experience described? Because people here, I know meditators here who have had a range of experiences that come close to these descriptions. Okay, the first one is Nibbana has no ontological reality at all. So let me just say what I mean by that. Ontology is the study of being, existence, whether things exist or not. Ontological reality means something has some form of existence. So this term nibbana could or could not have some form of existence. This school of thought says that nibbana is not a separate place or object at all or element, but it is only the state of mind which is free of greed, aversion, and confusion. Can you kind of appreciate that understanding? It's not a destination. It's not something that is a separate dimension of our reality. It's just a normal state of mind where greed, aversion, and delusion have been completely uprooted, never to arise again. 
Nothing metaphysical about it at all. Nothing transcendent. I mean, it's a very exalted state of mind, but it's not beyond the five senses. Now, I, I think that this view is somewhat close to the view of the Madhyamaka school, Nagarjuna school, who kept cutting out any pos- postulants of existence. I don't know this for a fact, but that's my, that's my suspicion. So, I also want to relate it to the term Rigpa and just kind of raise a point. We talked about Rigpa as empty cognizance, or we could say it as a verb, empty cognizing, because we really only know cognizing by its activity, don't we? So, when we talk about it as a verb, empty knowing, but then we give it a name, Rigpa, it turns it into a noun. Once we've turned a verb into a noun, we tend to ascribe an ontological reality to it. But is it necessarily there? So this is also what's pointed to even by some of the Dzogchen texts, which say you can't find it. Remember that section from Shabkar that I read last night? Look for mind, and it isn't to be found. It has no form or color. But I don't want to make a big deal of this. This is just more a kind of interesting question. I actually think... Well, I'll get to my opinion later. It's not so, it's not so important right now. Okay, here's the second description of the unconditioned element. This is the view of many Orthodox Theravadan schools... And I'll ascribe it particularly to the view of the Vasudhimaga, a 6th century text, which is very influential in Burma and Sri Lanka, and particularly associated with the school of Mahasi Sayadaw. So, in this, Nibbana has an ontological reality. It exists to some degree. You know, it doesn't exist like ordinary things exist. It exists on another kind of level, a more subtle level. Just the way that light existed in a lighter way than mass exists. But it nonetheless has some ontological reality. And here's a description of it from the Pali Canon. This is from the Samyutta Nikaya. Bhikkhus, that sphere should be realized where the eye stops and the perception of form fades away. That sphere should be realized where the ear stops and the perception of sound fades where the nose stops and the perception of odor fades, where the tongue stops and the perception of flavor fades, where the body stops and the perception of tactile sensation fades, where the mind stops and the perception of ideas and phenomena fade. That sphere should be realized. And it's clear that this is talking about the unconditioned. This is a pointer which you'll find many places in the Pali Canon to us a quality of mind, or you could call it a state, called cessation. Now, there are different interpretations of what constitutes cessation, but one way of describing the unconditioned is as a state of sensation. Sorry, cessation. Very different. Cessation. This was echoed also by a Zen master, I think it was Dogen, who talked about enlightenment as being the dropping off of body and mind. The dropping off of body and mind. So it's very clear from 
the descriptions in these teaching lineages that this is an experience that meditators have. It is, in their view, the goal of meditation practice because it is the contact with this dimension that does the uprooting of the fetters, the forms of bondage. But their description of it is that all five senses are suspended and even consciousness is suspended. So one way of saying it, if you want to say it accurately, is that the four mental aggregates go away, at least for a moment or a few moments. And so people who experience this in their meditation practice describe it as a gap. That there is knowing, 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 and the next thing they know, there's been some interval of time and they start knowing again. But they know that there's been an interval of time. But there is no memory of what happened in that interval of time. And maybe if they're really acute, they can get right on the far edge of that gap coming out of it, they get a little bit of a, a whiff of a memory of an aroma that existed there. And so they have some little sense of that unconditioned peace and stillness, maybe. But sometimes they come out of the gap and they don't have any memory at all. And in some schools, this is considered an enlightenment experience. In the Theravadan model, there are four levels of enlightenment, so this is not full enlightenment in the Tibetan sense, but it could be an experience of stream entry. So in this, even consciousness goes away. So there is no direct knowing of this state for the meditator. It's very much an altered state of mind. It's a very unlikely state to happen in daily life. It usually requires a lot of concentration and a lot of mindfulness and a lot of equanimity for the mind to have that experience. So you could say, in many ways, this is a classical description of enlightenment from an orthodox Theravadan point of view in in some schools. That the cessation is of all four mental aggregates. The physical aggregate, of course, is still there. The body doesn't go away. But because consciousness isn't there, there's no experience of the body. So experience just stops for a while. And that is when it's said that the mind opens to the unconditioned. Now, there's another description that you find in the Theravadan tradition which still has a quality of cessation to it, but in this uh, view, consciousness doesn't cease. So the other three mental aggregates do. Feeling, perception, and mental formations are absent but consciousness is still present. And in this view, what consciousness takes as its object is the deathless element. There's a direct realization of of Nibbana, of the unconditioned, in this view. This is is commonly the way it's described in the Thai forest tradition. So there's there's a great story of a teacher who was a contemporary of Ajahn Chah named Ajahn Mahabua. I think he's 93 years old now. He's still teaching in in Thailand, um, but he is old. He was a very, very dedicated practitioner. When he came into, I think it was about his 10th rains retreat, 
that means the three-month period when the monks don't move around and they usually do more retreat. He'd been a monk for ten years at that time. He decided to make a vow to sit up all night without moving. Every night of the rains retreat. So that's what he did. Every night he'd just sit up in meditation all night long. He said the pain was unbelievable. But he was very determined and he stuck to it. He said that after he did that, he lost his fear of death because he knew no pain from dying could be worse than the pain he'd experienced from this period of practice. These old guys, they didn't have chicken heart. They really went for it. He said, after that, his concentration was unshakable. From that point on, I kept making progress until my mind was like rock. In other words, I was skilled enough in the solidity and stability of my concentration that the mind was like a slab of rock. It couldn't be easily affected by anything at all. Then, I was stuck on that concentration for five full years. (laughs) He loved the stillness so much that he didn't want to give it up and he didn't think to look for anything greater anything beyond that stillness because it was so unmoving. Then he realized that he was stuck. It only took him five years. (laughs) Then he realized what he needed to use was what in that tradition is called satipanya, mindfulness wisdom. It's very similar in its nature to Rigpa. It's the combination of cognizance and wisdom. Cognizance and wisdom. He said, at that point, things went easily because my concentration was fully prepared. He began by turning this wisdom wisdom way of looking onto four factors. Desire and non-desire, suffering and ease. These are basically the four parts of the Four Noble Truths. So he was investigating the Four Noble Truths nonstop. And then he saw that they were all subject to change. Desire and non-desire kept alternating. Suffering and ease kept alternating. So he decided that wasn't the place to look. At that point, he said, I let go of everything else but mindfulness and wisdom. They became impartial and impassive, and the mind didn't tend to anything. And then here's the quote of the special moment. At that moment, the cosmos in the mind over which ignorance held sway trembled and quaked. Ignorance was thrown down from its throne on the heart. In its place, the pure mind appeared. At the same moment that ignorance was toppled and eradicated through the power of mindfulness and wisdom. And when he describes the pure mind, it is this faculty of uh, mindfulness and wisdom combined. The faculty of knowing and intelligence, which is very much like Rigpa. So this is a description that meets very well with the Tibetan understanding. Here's another reference from the Pali Canon. Sorry? What did he turn the wisdom and the mindfulness to? Themselves. The Satipanya he turned on itself. (laughs) Here's another reference from the Buddha's words from the Pali Canon. Consciousness without feature, without end, luminous all around. Sound familiar? Here, water, earth, fire, and wind have no footing. 
here long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul. Name and form are all brought to an end. With the stopping of consciousness, each is here brought to an end. So this is another style of cessation. There's cessation of all the sense activities. There's cessation of thought formation, even of the possibility of thought formation. But consciousness remains, and the only thing it's conscious of is the undying, the absolute, unmoving stillness of the unconditioned. Then, that's the, that's the third of these four models of nirvana. That quote was from uh, Diga Nikaya Sutta 11. Diga 11. The fourth of these models is that the realization of the unconditioned can take place in a state where all the senses are functioning, but where the poisons, let's say greed, aversion, and confusion, have ceased. So the cessation is of any kind of (coughs) grasping or misunderstanding, any degree of ignorance or grasping. So everything else is functioning, but there's a clear perception of the deathless. This is more like the view of Dzogchen. So, you can also find references in the Pali Canon that support uh, certainly number three, where consciousness is present with the unconditioned. One interesting way to, to find out whether awareness is permanent is to ask what happens when a fully enlightened being dies. Is there any consciousness that continues, or is there not? Did you? In the group? What was the answer? Well, it's a little controversial in this room. He said that the wisdom stream continues. Uh-huh. And I said, you mean as a specific, uh, particular individual? Mm-hmm. He said, yes. Mm-hmm. And he looked and he said, you're free. You're free to manifest and do mm-hmm. So, and mm-hmm. then he said, Buddha nature is not alone. Not mm-hmm. one big thing. Mm-hmm. Everyone has their own specific thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting, yeah. <laughs> he said that... He said to you, you have your emptiness or something like that. He said you're free to manifest or to express... The comment was... Yeah, Deborah said that what Rinpoche said when the question was asked this afternoon was, uh, you're free, the consciousness does continue but it's a wisdom mind stream only. And it's not that it merges back into a universal blob of mind, but the mind stream stays individual, and if you want, you can manifest again. Meaning, presumably, take birth or manifest on wordless planes. Interesting. So in the Pali, in the Pali that, that is what I thought from the Tibetan point of view, too. In the Pali Suttas, this question gets um, touched on when you ask the question, what happens when an arahant dies? So there's this interesting passage where somebody is very close to 
liberation, but they can't quite get there. So they're practicing, practicing, practicing. This bhikkhu's name is Gaudika. Gets close to liberation, has a temporary liberation, but then falls back into samsara, suffering. Practices, 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 achieves temporary liberation, (sighs) falls back into samsara. And does this a number of times. And because he's unable to sustain his liberation, he gets discouraged and commits suicide. The euphemism in the canon for committing suicide is that Bhikkhu Gaudika used the knife and took his life. He was just practicing out on a, a mountaintop somewhere on his own. Then the other bhikkhus came to the Buddha and said, uh, Gaudika used the knife. Isn't that really bad for him? Because you know in Buddhism, one isn't supposed to take one's own life. It's still killing a human being. And so it goes against the precepts. And the Buddha looked with his psychic vision and he said, uh, no worries. Because just before the clansman died, he attained arahantship. So he was released just before the moment of death, even though he had used the knife already. Then he said, did you see near where the clansman was staying, did you see a black cloud swirling around there? said, that was no puff of smoke. He said, that was Mara searching for the consciousness of Gaudika. Mara is the one who comes and tempts practitioners away. He was trying to find the consciousness so that he could drag that practitioner, drag their spirit back to a lower realm or away from practice or away from the liberating Dharma or something like that. So he wouldn't be reborn in a, in a good place. But, he said, the Buddha said, Mara was unable to find Gotika's consciousness. Because he had attained arahantship, his consciousness was unestablished. So the Buddha didn't say that his consciousness didn't exist anymore. He said that that dead arahant's consciousness was unestablished. And there's another great passage that illustrates what unestablished means. And this is what I want to finish with. Buddha said, suppose you have a building and it has an eastern window and, of course, four walls. So the sunlight comes in through the eastern window. Where does it land? On the western wall. And sunlight lands on the western wall. And the Buddha said, what if there were no western wall there? Where would the sunlight land? And they said, on the earth. He said, what if there was no earth there, but there was water? Where would it land? He said, on the water. Finally, he said, what if there was no water or earth there? Where would it land? And at that point, he said, it would be unestablished. The sunlight would be unestablished. Sunlight in empty space? Remind you of anything? Sunlight on the Western Wall, the Buddha, Guy Armstrong. Okay. I won't claim that one.
So, finally tonight, I want to describe uh, one meeting I had with Nyosho Ken Rinpoche, whom Sogni Rinpoche has mentioned a few times. Nyosho Kempo was a teacher of Sogni Rinpoche, and his picture is on the altar. If you haven't looked yet, there are photos of, on this side, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche and Toka Urgen Rinpoche, our Rinpoche's father. So you might like to take a look. I was practicing one year... Sogni Rinpoche had not been able to come to America, and I was missing having contact with him, so I went over to Kathmandu. And I spent a few weeks there and would go up to his monastery for teachings and practice in the shrine room, and I practiced in my hotel and had some contact with him over over a couple of weeks, which was a very wonderful experience. Then one day, Nyoshiken Rinpoche was in town and staying at uh, Rinpoche's monastery outside of Swayambu. And Rinpoche asked, would you like to meet Nyosho Ken Rinpoche? I said, uh, well, I have some dana to offer him. A friend of mine had heard that he was staying there. He was a teacher of hers and said, would you offer uh, Nyosho Ken Rinpoche some dana on my behalf? I said, I don't need to meet him. I said, I'll just give you the dana and you can offer it to him coming from my friend. And Sogni kind of looked at me like, are you crazy? But I just said, I, I, don't, need, I don't need to meet him. I thought, you know, met one Rinpoche. But then I reconsidered. And I said to this Rinpoche, you know, I really would like to meet Nyosho Ken Rinpoche. So it would be great if I could go in and present the dana. So he arranged it for me. And I'd heard so many things about this great teacher, great bodhisattva. I was quite nervous going in to meet him. Also, I'd been meditating for a couple of weeks, so I was pretty open at that point. So I went in, and um, we had just a little chit-chat. I was introduced, and he was there, and his wife was there who, who looked after him. And then there came the moment for me to uh, present the offering, So I went up and I bowed three times, uh, all on the ground. And then I held out the uh, offering to him. He took it. And then I looked up into his eyes. I was, as I said, I was a little nervous. And looking into his eyes was an experience that I will never forget. Because as I looked into his eyes, he seemed to go into his meditative state. And he's a highly highly accomplished Dzogchen practitioner. He was. He passed away a few years later. His eyes seemed to just widen a little bit, separate as though his gaze was really in the distance, and all movement in his mind ended. There was some kind of cessation that happened. And as I looked into his eyes, I felt like I was looking into nirvana. And I felt if I had just been able to look into them a little longer... something might have happened. It was so still looking into his eyes that it wasn't right to say that his mind was still. It more felt like there was no mind there to be still or not. There was just an absence of possibility of movement. And in that gaze, I felt so exposed, I got even more nervous. I felt like he was just looking right into the middle of me and seeing my anxiety. 
And at that point, I just, I sort of came out of that little spell, said goodbye, made my bows again, and left. But that gave me kind of the transmission experience of a little bit of the sense of the mind of a great Dzogchen practitioner. And it was definitely as still as anything I've, I've ever encountered. So I think that really is the union of cognizance and emptiness. That place that Nyosho Ken Rinpoche was able to access instantly, instantly at will. Okay, so it is about 8.45. If there are people who have uh, kitchen jobs, this would be a good time to go. And I'll take a couple of questions and then I'll give a break to everybody. Did that resolve your speculation on awareness? Uh, I've, I, okay, personal opinion. Um, I definitely feel that it's possible to realize the unconditioned with consciousness. And whether it's possible to realize it with eyes open, I suspect it is also. So I'm in kind of schools three and four of the ones that I mentioned. Of, well, of all these possibilities. Let's say the first one is there's no ontological reality, but greed, aversion, delusion have ceased. The second one is cessation means cessation of consciousness. The third one is there's cessation of other mental activities and senses, but there's the consciousness of the unconditioned. And the fourth one is, all senses are functioning and there's the perception of the unconditioned. So I'm kind of, personally, I'm kind of, kind of in schools three and four. Personal opinion. question about the source of the light in the analogy. I would really say in the Tibetan understanding there is no source. There really is no source, but that um, natural clarity has no cause. Has no beginning and no end. So, I would understand it, this this is how I understand it. The basic makeup of the universe is this combination of uh, wisdom and emptiness. And closely conjoined with those, of course, is the compassion of the third piece. That that's just the fabric of the universe, or the fabric of mind, at any rate, which is the basis of the universe. It's my understanding. (laughs) There's There's a terrific book, Long Chen Pa wrote this trilogy called The Trilogy of Finding Comfort and Ease. The third volume is called Wonderment. And it's as close as I've ever read anybody get to describing sort of the origin of things. So if you get interested, you could try a little reading in that. But it's, it's dense. Okay, one last question. Please. Okay, in the Theravadan. Yeah. Four levels of enlightenment are um, the first one uproot... Well, I should probably talk about what the ten fetters are. There are ten qualities that bind the mind. The first one uproots 
what are called the first three, which are uh, doubt, doubt about whether the teachings lead to the ultimate peace, personality view, which is a belief that there really is a substantially existing self, and attachment to religious rituals as a way to achieve purity of mind. I think that's in there because Brahminical practices in the Buddha's day believed that. The second stage of enlightenment only has the effect of weakening two of the other fetters, which are sense, desire, and aversion. But it doesn't actually uproot any. The third stage of enlightenment uproots sense, desire, and aversion. So that there's no longer any hankering after anything on a material plane, and there's no longer any resistance to any experience whatsoever. Then full enlightenment or arhatship uproots the remaining five fetters, which are attachment to fine material experience, which is jhana realms, the bliss of jhana realms. And some of the heavenly realms are based on the mind states of the lower four jhanas. Attachment to fine, to immaterial experience. And the higher four jhanas uh, are are immaterial attainments that also give rise to different deva and brahma realms, which are the plane of infinite space, the plane of infinite consciousness, the plane of nothingness, and the plane of neither perception nor non-perception. So one gives up any kind of craving for more refined forms of experience. And uh, in addition, the last three that are uh, eliminated, this one will amaze you, restlessness. Restlessness is one of the remaining fetters. So when you find yourself itching at the end of a 45-minute sit, don't think that that's trivial. Restlessness is uprooted. Conceit is uprooted, which means any tendency to conceive of oneself as a self. All conceiving of self is gone. And the final one is ignorance. Ignorance is completely plucked out of the mind. And at that time, the mind is purified completely of any unwholesome states, greed, aversion, and ignorance. That's a good place to end. (laughs) 